to second press is you get to have fabulous colleagues and uh, every once in a while you get a new one. And Richard Reeves is one of those for me. He's currently an assistant pastor here at Second, and we've called him to plant a church downtown, which he's going to talk some about. Richard is from Memphis, as is his wife, Rachel. They have three daughters. Richard went to Christian Brothers High School, and he also went to University of Memphis. And uh, we are glad he's here. Richard, come on up. Let's welcome Richard. Thank you. It is, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be back in Memphis. Uh, we planted a church out in um, Olive Branch, Mississippi. We're there for 10 years. And for the last five years, I've been in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, Money Magazine um, designated Fort Collins the number one city in America to live. So I go from there to downtown Memphis, which uh, I must say, uh, Feels like more like home than uh, Fort Collins, Colorado for this southern boy, that's for sure. So it is good to be back home. Um, we had a, a good time out in Colorado, and you'll hear a little bit about that in just a minute. Um, but this morning I want to look at Galatians chapter 3. And... Verse 26, Paul, after uh, laying out the beauty of this gospel that he's been preaching, uh, that, that has been the bedrock and the foundation upon which churches have been planted, uh, men and women, boys and girls have been saved uh, of all races, of all uh, socioeconomic uh, statuses, he declares this in verse 26, you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus and have, cl and have clothed yourselves with Christ or been clothed with Christ. And then his point is, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, let's pray, and we'll uh, talk a little bit about this this morning. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that you redeemed us out of darkness and brought us into the glorious light of Jesus the Christ, our brother, our friend, our master, our Lord. We thank you, O oh God, that you're a God that does not react. You're a God that that is on the move. You're a God that is very proactive from all eternity. <laughs> you never take a step back. There are always steps forward. And yet, oh, Father, uh, we don't always understand those steps, and we are not always comfortable with those steps. But we know that by uh, um, the power of your Holy Spirit that you do things in us that we cannot explain that allow us to step back and look at you and marvel. And so, Father, we are looking to you to do something like that in Memphis, uh, to raise up a church, if not churches, that look different, that feel different, that will change this city, that will change its history from this point forward. 
Oh, Father, we look forward to what you will do um, through Second, um, through your churches, through your people in this city. And we pray that even in the next few minutes, you might use uh, your gospel to change us, to open our eyes to our part in it. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, I was approached to consider uh, starting a church in downtown Memphis, one thing that, that struck me about that um, was the diversity of downtown. And when I say diversity, I don't just mean African-American white. I mean the diversity socioeconomically. <laughs> if you know anything about downtown, you know that there's a lot of work going on, a lot of building uh, going on. A lot of condos, homes on Mud Island have been there you know, for 10, 15 years. But you can stand at the corner of Vance and Main, which is where we've lived for the last two months before moving uh, to Mud Island. You can throw a rock just about and hit one of the poorest, where it's actually the poorest zip code, 38126, in all of Tennessee, if not the Mid-South. And so there's tremendous diversity, and therefore, when you think about starting a new church in the downtown area, and you're coming at it from the perspective that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, then you can't close your eyes to this diversity. <laughs> and so then you're faced with the overwhelming challenge of how do you have a church that's diverse racially, and diverse in regards to economic status. And men, I don't have the answer to that. I've been working on a paper and, and processing some thoughts, and that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. Uh, I mean, any person would, would be a fool. I do know the answer, <laughs> uh, but it's not an easy one, okay? And there's no procedure. But what I want to share with you this morning it, it are just some thoughts that had been running through my mind, and that's really what I do when I, when I plant a church. And I've, I've never, by the way, set out to be a chronic or habitual church planner. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, will be, I hope, my third and last church to plant. I hope I'm here. I hope you bury me somewhere around downtown. Uh, I hope I, I turn uh, old and more gray than I already am. Um, but in the churches that I planted before, I go and I study and I think and I pray and I ask the hard questions. And the question that I've been asking myself is, why have we, and when I say we, I mean we. You heard my background, Christian Brothers High School. You know, I grew up in Bartlett but lived mostly in East Memphis. I went to the University of Memphis. Um, I grew up in Independent Presbyterian Church. I still see that as my home church. John Sartell was, the, was my youth director, actually. I, I was, my family went to Independent when there were 200 people in attendance. So, uh, so I'm talking about us. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to us, and I'm asking this question. Why is there such a resistance toward multi-ethnic or multi-socioeconomic uh, churches? Why is Sunday morning, and we've all heard this, the most segregated time in our country and probably our city as well. Why are less than 5% of the churches, evangelical churches in our country, um, multiracial? Um, and and that, that question may cause you to kind of stiffen, you know, but don't. Well, let's think about this. Let's go to the scriptures and let's put it out there uh, because I think the answers 
might be surprising. So why? Especially when, as we look at the Scriptures and we celebrate the New Covenant, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we see that at the very thrust and heart of this Gospel was that there really is in Christ neither Jew nor Greek. And in Paul's day, that was a radical thing to say. A radical, if not highly offensive thing to say. I mean, that's why as, as Gentiles, Greeks, if you will, were being converted, they had to explain it. They had to come back to Jerusalem and report and say, this really is happening. I mean, God is really this powerful and this gospel is really this expansive to even break down the wall and the barrier between Jew and Greek and make us one in Christ. It was a major, if not the major, issue in the early church at first. They had to, to, to prove that this gospel was really doing a work like that. And I believe that's what we need today. I believe we need to re-believe this gospel and reapply this gospel in ways that, that make me uncomfortable, that make us uncomfortable. And that's really what I want to get at this morning. Because when we talk about a multi-ethnic church or multi-socioeconomic church, um, we're really talking about a church that is, that is modeling the gospel. Because the Christian life, not just the life of faith, but the Christian faith is a life downward. It's always been that way in the scriptures. It's not a life of climbing the ladder, but it's a life descending down the ladder. Do you know what I mean by that? It's a life that, that, that springs out of death. It's a life that springs out of weakness. It's a life that springs um, out of mourning, as we're going to talk about uh, in a little while. It's never a life that springs out of competency or comfort. And we resist that. Paul put it this way in, in Romans 1. He said, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And it's a righteousness by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, Paul said, the righteous will live by faith. They will live by faith. And I want you to know in my life, I resist that with everything in me. <laughs> I resist a life of faith. Um, pretty much like the Mississippi River resists an upward flow. I mean, that's how strong I resist a life of faith. Let me give you an example of that. Um, when uh, Eddie Foster and, and Frank Stallworth and Bruce Harrington first approached me, about the possibility of a downtown church. I, was, I really was surprised because I've dreamed about a church in downtown for probably 15 to 20 years. I don't know why God has put that downtown Memphis, the only place really um, in my heart, but he had. And so when they approached me, I immediately knew, oh no, <laughs> God may be doing something. He may be unsettling my nice little comfortable life in Fort Collins, Colorado, and so when they started really calling me, I didn't just resist it. I mean, I wouldn't even return their phone calls. Uh, they would call me, and for whatever reason, I had Second Pres's number in my phone. And so on my, my cell phone, I would see Second Pres, and I would say, ah, I better not answer that phone call. 
for like six weeks. Ask them. They'll tell you. They couldn't even get me. But they were not the only ones calling me. The Holy Spirit was calling me. And if you've ever tried to resist the Holy Spirit, you know he wins every time. I mean, it, it's kind of like you're saying no, you're in your comfortable leather chair, watching TV, life is good, you like the order, the room is settled, everything's where it's expected to be, and then the Holy Spirit comes under your chair and starts building a fire, you know, and you're ignoring it, and you're kind of, hey, I don't, you know, this, this is a little uncomfortable, but, you know, kind of go away, go away. Well, he always wins. So in January or February, uh, I said yes to the call to come um, to Memphis. And, and I thought, well, okay, I'm being obedient now. I, I, I'm following the, the call of God, so he's going to kind of back off. The fire will go down. But it was just the opposite. I mean, it was like, you know, life went absolutely out of control from that point forward. Because the kind of church that we planted in Fort Collins was a church that was really for de-churched, unchurched folks. This was a door back to Christ for many, if not most, of the people in our church. Or it was the first door to Christ that many of, of those in our church there ever experienced. And so what I'm saying is the church in Fort Collins, uh, there, there were no people coming uh, because it was the thing to do. The only reason you came to Grace Church Fort Collins was because Jesus was doing something deeply deeply significant in your life and you were coming back or you were coming to faith for the first time and I underestimated that kind of the commitment and how emotionally charged it would be when I announced that I was coming to Memphis because people were very attached to this church and very attached to me and so when I announced it from that point really till you know it's still going on but to the day I moved I spent hours untold hours with individuals explaining to them this whole idea of calling, this whole idea of the kingdom advancing through church planning, having a missional mindset. And I still think, especially my closest friends, are just not over it. They're still mad at me, literally. <laughs> and so those several months was emotionally draining answering the call of God to come to Memphis. Well, my daughter uh, graduated from CSU, our middle daughter, Ashley, and she's trained to be a school teacher, and she was moving back uh, to the south anyway, and she came back to look for a job, and she wasn't here a week when I got a phone call, and I could hear sirens in the background and, and a lot of people talking, and that's never a call you want to get as a dad, but, but I, the first words out of her mouth were, Dad, I'm okay. <laughs> I thought, well, that's good, but what happened? And she was at a stoplight, and a 15-year-old boy, unlicensed, driving an uninsured car, ran into the back of her. He was going about 45. She was sitting still. Uh, thank God for Volvos, you know, old Volvos. Uh, the, the, there was no trunk left. It was in the back seat. Um, and she's been in physical therapy since, but she wasn't seriously hurt. Um, but for the first time in my life, you know, I'm facing legal ramifications of that. And, you know, I'm kind of thrust into this thing. We, I found out uh, you really need uninsured motorist insurance. Uh, if you don't have it, go today. Uh, my grandfather, my dad, my brother, all lawyers never told me that, by the way. But um, you need it. Go get it if you don't have it today. Um, so that happened. We moved to Memphis. And for the first two weeks, I, um, um, I guess, spent time with an individual that we were considering partnering with me. 
um, an African-American co-pastor to go into downtown Memphis and had to make the tough call that uh, though he was highly gifted, highly trained, a very sharp individual, he just was not the right guy uh, for this work at this time. Very hard decision to make. Uh, in the midst of that, developed a, a ruptured disc in my neck, never had any health problems, never even had an IV in my arm. But for three weeks, just, I was gone. <laughs> you know, my first three weeks on the job, really, I was out of it. And that ended in surgery. Um, and thank God for surgeons, really, uh, the best relief I've ever had. Um, but, th but that was my life. And the whole time, I'm, I'm seeing something growing in my heart. And I'm asking the question, God, what are you doing? I mean, I'm your son. <laughs> I'm your child. It's what you tell me in your word. And this is how you treat me? I mean, I've come to plant a church, and this is what you're doing to me? And yeah, <laughs> because my father loves me. And he was reminding me yet again that the life of faith is a life downward. And I'm not coming to Memphis to give people something that I don't need. But I'm coming to broken people as a broken person to bring the beauty of this gospel, this person of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way to go into ministry. It's the only way to go into a new city. It's the only way to live life. But we resist that. We really do. And I think that we resist it to a point that is unhealthy. And it's why when we read passages like Matthew 25, when Jesus gives us a picture of the end of time and he starts talking about the sheep and the goats and he says the sheep are the ones that listen to the cry of the hungry and the naked and the prisoner and the lonely and the stranger that we, especially we, get uncomfortable. <laughs> because that's a life of faith that we're not sure we're ready to jump into. That's why when we read the Beatitudes, they just are kind of confusing to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the Beatitudes seem irrelevant to us in our experience. Because we want to be first. I mean, that's what we're striving for, is it not? I was sitting in the parking lot of my daughter's private school, our 15-year-old daughter's private school, and waiting for her to come out. And as I sat there, I'm looking around the parking lot, and I'm realizing that these high school students, most of them are driving a better car than I drive. And I'm getting kind of bitter about it. I look in my rearview mirror, and there's a brand new Land Rover behind me. And I thought, okay, any minute, some 16-year-old punk is going to come walking out here, and he's going to get in that Land Rover, and I'm just going to want to strangle him, you know, because that's kind of my heart. And sure enough, this little 16-year-old punk, you know, came out, got in his Land Rover, and I just kind of shook my head, like, this is not right. But what, why? Because I want to be first. 
I want to drive that Land Rover. You know, I'm not judging him for driving the Land Rover. I want the Land Rover, all right? And that's how we kind of live life. But here's the thing. In the Christian life, Jesus says, blessed are we when we're last. Blessed are we when we're suffering. Blessed are we when we're hurting and struggling. And we don't understand it, much less embrace it which is what God has called us to do. Embrace it. Here's, here's what's dawning on me. When someone has lived his whole life, and when really a community have lived their whole lives striving to be in first place, we're confused when Jesus says he's in the last place. If you've lived your life assuming that you're in last place, it's great news that Jesus is in last place. <laughs> this is not uncommon. It's not just peculiar to our day. I mean, you remember what the mother of Zebedee's sons did. She came to Jesus, and what did she say? Please let my sons, one sit on your right and one sit on your left in the kingdom. You remember what Jesus said? He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Interesting. Jesus is saying there's a different economy in my kingdom. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. There's no other way. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, time and time again, was saying this is the economy of the gospel, and it's a road downward, not upward. So how do we do that? How do we live this life? It's not, well, I've got to go, you know, I've got to go try to be broken. I think what Jesus is saying all throughout the scriptures is that we are broken. We just have to recognize it. We have to see our brokenness and really understand it. I mean, the gospel says it's always countercultural, and it's always saying what we don't want to hear. I mean, the culture tells us today, believe in yourself. And the gospel says, well, before you feel good about yourself, <laughs> you've got to feel bad about yourself. You've got to think negatively about yourself. You've got to understand that you are the biggest sinner in any room you ever go into. You're the biggest sinner in your marriage. You're the biggest sinner in your home. You're the biggest sinner in your office. You're the biggest sinner in your city. And that is the first step to really living a life downward. That is the first step. I mean, Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But when it dies, it produces many seeds. The road to that death is not to try to be broken, but to simply look at your life and realize that I'm broken. And friends, what that means in terms of the context of Memphis in our day, and what that means for us, is we need to understand that not only are we broken, but if we are broken and those around us are broken, then our communities are broken, then our city is broken, then our churches are broken. And we have to be willing to look at, at where we are as a church and a city and as individuals. And we have to say, maybe we've done some things wrongly. No, we have done some things wrongly. 
I mean, that's the first step to freedom and to life for the city and for the kingdom is to look at us and to say, Richard Reeves is a sinner. <laughs> the guy that Jesus is calling to go into downtown and to face these monsters, if you will, and when I say that, I mean kind of the, the big things, the big challenges. I've got to know that I go as a broken individual and I'm to blame for much um, of the, the problems and issues of our city. I think in our, our lives, we resist this. I was talking to an individual the other day and he was confiding in me that as a young boy, he had a sexual experience with another young boy in his neighborhood. And this is you know, a guy that does not live in Memphis. Um, he's a professional, um, a sharp guy. And he said, I've never told anybody else this but you. <laughs> but the reason he was telling me this is, is for this. He said, you know, I've just now come to realize how that encounter has shaped my entire life. He said, I've seen myself living against that, saying, I'm going to be a success. Because when I came home that day, I felt so dirty and I felt like a loser that I said, I'm never going to feel that way again. And so the success that he's experienced, and he's experienced a lot of success, has not necessarily been for the glory of God and the good of others, <laughs> but it's been to turn a blind eye and to prove that he's not that boy. And I sense that a lot of us, you know, especially those of us that are very successful, and I mean us, are living against a broken story and saying, I am not going to be that individual, or I'm going to prove that I'm better. So it's not necessarily success for the glory of God and the good of others, but it's, it's success for me. Well, what in the world does this have to do with church, with planning a multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomically diverse church? What does this have to do with you and me? Well, here's what I fear. I fear that we in the church have operated corporately the, uh, the way that we operate individually. And in essence, we will do anything to avoid the brokenness of our lives. We will gift and we will, we will staff toward our competency, not our incompetency. I mean, how can there be so few multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic churches, not just in Memphis, but across our country? How can there be less than 5% in any city of churches like that? I want to propose that I believe it's because we're unwilling to apply the gospel or have been unwilling to apply the gospel in this one area. And I believe that we've done so because it's uncomfortable and it's unnerving. We like to do what we do well. And friends, there is no way to do this well. Do you hear me? There is no way to do a church like this well. In fact, it could be a colossal failure. I've had people tell me that. I've had people say, Richard, you're crazy. This is going to fail. And I say, my reaction is, you may be right. <laughs> but does that mean that we don't do it? If it's right? 
Doesn't the gospel call us to do it? I mean, to stop on the side of the road and to help those that are poor and broken, is there going to be a personal cost to that? Could they attack you? Yes. I mean, do you hear me? The kingdom does not promise, and Jesus never promises safety. He promises that he'll be faithful and that we have a future hope. We don't like incompetency. We don't like to do things that we're not guaranteed success in. And, and we kind of spiritualize that in the church today. We say God loves excellence, and he does. But it's an order and it's a beauty that he brings out of our brokenness, not that is produced because of our competency. Paul put it this way, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Here's kind of my, what I've been thinking about lately. What is the weakness of the church today? I mean, how do we walk into weakness? How do we walk into lowliness? Is it not the very thing that God has redeemed us for and calls us to? I mean, what is the thing that we, especially as men, are horrible at? Is it not love? We are horrible relationally, every one of us. <laughs> That's why we work so much. That's why I love to leave the house in the morning, because I can do ministry. I can write a sermon, you know. <laughs> I can preach. I can, you, know, you might disagree with me right now, but, <laughs> but I, I can do it, you know. I can't do relationship. I, I don't get my wife. I will have been married 25 years this November, and I don't think I know her any better now than I did when, you know, I know a lot more about her, but I just don't get it. I don't get relationship, okay? And we don't get the church either because that is what the church is. It's relationship. God has called us to love <laughs> And he has called us not just to love those like us, but even especially those unlike us. Notice I said love, not charity. God does not call us to charity. He calls us to love. Listen to what he said, what he prayed for, Jesus prayed for in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, just as disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Friends, Jesus prayed that his church would be one. And in so doing, we see the example of it. We don't have time this morning, but we could walk through the book of Acts. And, you know, just, I mean, how does Acts begin? <laughs> you will be my witnesses. 
in Judea and Samaria, or in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. If you go to the church in Antioch, it's a racially diverse church. It's a, it's a, a church that is socioeconomically diverse. We, we could talk all day about that. The scripture just speaks overwhelmingly clear in regard to that. And that is the church that Jesus is saying he is praying will be one. Why? So that the world will know. Because it, it, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to bring like-minded people together. I love people just like me. I love people that love things that I love to do because they don't get in my way when I want to go do something. They come with me or I go with them. You know, I think about Waring Porter, our church planner in, in, in uh, Midtown. Great guy. I love him. We love to do the same things. We love to run together. <laughs> you know, we talk running just about every time we're together. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to, to mesh the lives of like people together. It takes the Holy Spirit to make one those that have nothing in common but Jesus. And friends, that's what the church is to be about. And that's how the world will know Jesus. But I, I want to propose to you that I really do believe that that's how we will know Jesus too. The reason that we don't experience much of Jesus much of the time is because we're unwilling to move toward those that make us uncomfortable. Now hear me here. It's interesting. When Jesus, before he ascended, he said to his disciples, I will not leave you alone. I will, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send a helper. I will send the paraclete. And one commentator interprets uh, that word paraclete as the one who hears the cry. And what Jesus was saying there was, the way to me is to cry out. The way to me is to mourn, to see your neediness. The way to me is to, to, is to be meek because you know your own sinfulness. And you, you're moving toward me, not from a position of competency, but from a position of absolute desperation, crying out. And the church today, we as individuals need to cry out. And the only way we're going to do that is if we move toward those unlike us. If we move toward embracing even, you don't even have to leave second prayers. <laughs> move toward people in second prayers that are completely unlike you. Because they're going to expose something in you. You know why people bug you? Because they don't get in line with your agenda. That's why my children frustrate me to no end a lot of the times. <laughs> because they don't get in line with my agenda. That's why I lose my patience with them. I mean, I was asking myself this the other day. I'm, I'm walking out the door and I'm like, why am I so angry right now at my daughter? She has no idea, I don't think, that I was angry with her. But I was because she was making me late. We need to be in relationship with people that make us late. <laughs> we need to be in relationship with people that don't follow our schedule. We need to be in community. We resist crying out. I was talking to my friend Delvin Lane at Streets Ministry the other day. Uh, Ken Bennett is probably a name that most and many of you in this room know. He started Streets Ministry uh, on Vance Avenue in um, the 38126 um, um, area of Memphis 20-plus uh, years ago. And Delvin is an African-American uh, brother who um, was a gang leader, 
um, and was converted and is now, as of about a month ago, the new director of Streets Ministry. And we were talking and he was sharing this frustration because every Monday night during the school year, he leads about 200, and I went one night last semester, and there are, there are over 200 um, teenagers uh, from the neighborhood there assembling for youth group, club, whatever they call it. And then on Thursday nights, they have about 150 junior high students. So 350, 400 students coming in that building, hearing the gospel, worshiping, if you will, um, there. And he said, Richard, here's my frustration. I tell them over and over and over again, you know, this is not church. This is club, but this is not church. And he said, the next question they ask me then is, when they really think about it is, then where is my church? Where do I go to church? Because the churches that they go into literally have told them that they can't go there. It's too overwhelming. They don't have the resources. That makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) It, It does, because I know that we can plant a church in downtown that ignores that 350 to 400 demographic. We can do it. I can connect with people that are in business and that live a life like me. But what is a church going to look like that opens its doors and maybe the first Sunday has 400 teenagers? But Jesus said, that's what you need, church. Because I've not called you to charity. I've not called you just to tutor one hour a week. I've not called you just to to take a meal. I've called you to love and to respect and to live in relationship. Because here's the thing. We, We need those unlike us. We need the poor. We need other races because we need to learn from their experience and have the sins of our race exposed. As they do. It's not healthy for one race to live alone and another race to live alone. One socioeconomic um, um, group to live alone and another to live alone. Because then we find our comfort in judging those unlike us. But when we come into a place like the church and we have to live together, then we all have to repent. The poor man cannot blame the rich man. The rich man cannot judge the poor man. The white man cannot judge the black man. The black man cannot judge the white man. We're all sinners. (laughs) And we all have to live in community. And the only way to do that is through Christ living in repentance and living in faith that we are one because he and he alone is our righteousness. He is the essence of our justification and nothing else. The gospel has the power to do it and we need that. And I want to propose this morning that we may need Others unlike us more than they need us. I've been reading a little booklet, and I would highly recommend you get it. It's it's by Jean Venere, entitled From Brokenness to Community. Uh, You can see how small it is. Uh, But if you're not familiar with, I I believe this is how you pronounce his name. I I don't know French, but Jean Venere. He was a highly successful um, officer in the Navy, Uh, the British Navy, when he felt the call of God to simply move toward those with mental disabilities. And so he basically adopted two men with mental disabilities and and brought them into his home and began to live with them. And from that, 
um, he started these communities, and they're all over the world now. There are hundreds of them called Layark Communities, where uh, those with full mental capacity live with those with mental disabilities and, and learn from each other and, and take care of each other. And he gave a, a lecture series uh, to Harvard um, Divinity School um, where Henry Nowen <laughs> was teaching, if you know that name. Uh, and, and really, Jean Veneer is the man that God used to call Henry Nowen into the lay art communities and giving his life to those with mental disabilities. Unbelievable story. But this is what he said. Uh, he, he writes in his book, People may come to our communities because they want to serve the poor. Well, they will only stay once they've discovered that they themselves are the poor. And then they discover something extraordinary, that Jesus came to bring the good news to the poor, not to those that serve the poor. Friends, this is why we need something more than charity. Because it, 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 it might feed something in us, and it might meet a need. It does meet a need when we do acts of charity. But the gospel calls us to more than that. It says to embrace each other and live in community in the same body if you're in the same place so that you might be changed and they might be changed. Here's what I believe. I believe a church that is willing to do this is going to look very messy. Uh, the programs are not going to be shiny. There's going to be very little that would attract you to a place like that. <laughs> except for the gospel. When we believe that we are just as broken as those around us, but we have a Savior that has chosen us from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, to be His sons, to make us righteous before the Father that we might be accepted and loved, only and completely by grace. That is the message that's going to send us out into our city. And that's the message that's going to change our city as we preach it and as we model it. Dear friends, I desperately need your prayers. <laughs> um, this work desperately needs your prayers. Um, we need for God uh, to guide every step of this effort. We need for God to provide an African-American co-partner. Uh, and we've said from the beginning that person's position will depend upon the person, their giftedness. Uh, they may be the senior pastor. They may be a co-pastor with me. They may be the assistant pastor. But we are looking to God to bring an African-American co-pastor with me that will go into the city and preach and model this gospel that will embrace rich and poor, black and white, and see God do something unique, to see God do something beautiful out of the mess of the two men's lives <laughs> that are planning the church. Pray for us. Pray for that primarily, that God would bring that individual and that it would happen sooner rather than later. I talked to a church planner the other day that's doing the same thing in Charlotte, North Carolina, downtown area. He waited three years for that. Um, we don't wait well. I'm very impatient. Um, we don't want to wait three years for that. Um, but that's, that's, the, that's what we're up against. And so pray that God would, would, be, would, would see fit to bring an individual sooner rather than later 
to partner with me and to go into the city and work through these ideas and work through this gospel that I presented to you this morning. I covet your prayers. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you are a friend of sinners, that you did not come to call the righteous, uh, but you came for those that were unhealthy and sick. And we really do qualify for that. And there are many other brothers in our city that qualify for that as well. And we want that gospel, the gospel that has come to us, to go to them. And we want to see you uh, bring down walls and barriers that have been built through pride and unbelief, um, through hatred and arrogance. And we want to see you build a community of love, a true oneness to occur that the only explanation can be not a church planner, not the giftedness of men, but the power of the Spirit and the beauty of the gospel, that Christ might be glorified, that his fame might spread throughout the world, the city first and then the world, and that you, O oh God, might receive glory upon glory and praise upon praise. Would you be so kind and so willing to do that right here in Memphis? And we pray in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.